Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the love that you have for us and the love that you have for each of your creatures. And Lord, I do pray that, uh, that people all around the world, in the Middle East, in, uh, in parts of Louisville, all around the world, that people would be able to grasp how high and wide and long and deep is the love of Jesus Christ for them, that they would experience that. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this opportunity we have to meet together to, to listen to you. Lord, I pray that we would listen. All these things are praying in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, all right, here we go. Hey, uh, hey. by the way, just one follow-up. Chris says that he likes tough conversations. God bless him. I don't. So if you've got a problem, go to Chris. All right, so, all right, all right, so here we go. All right, all right. Uh, does anybody know who Terry Baleo is? Anybody know who Terry Baleo? All right, let's try. This might help you. So I heard somebody say it. It's Hulk Hogan. Who said, Who knew it was Hulk Hogan? Who knew that? Oh, Mr. Tom. All right, all right. So, yeah, there it is. Hulk Hogan, his, his real name is Terry uh, Baleo. I didn't, I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it right. But uh, so it's interesting to me. Hulk Hogan is as much a part of the American culture of the 80s and 90s as the Macarena, Seinfeld and Friends, Beanie Babies, and AOL dial-up internet. Okay, I mean, that was just, I mean, it was a part of the 80s and 90s. Hulk Hogan I mean, I mean, everybody knew who Hulk Hogan was. So, so it's a little bit of history here. A little, and there's, there's a point to all this, so stay with me. So in, uh, he was a young wrestler, had bounced around a little bit. But in 1982, he appeared in Rocky III. I think we got a slide of that. And uh, he, he was a, his character was, na- was known as Thunderlips. And he was fighting against Rocky, you know, Sylvester Stallone. And uh, he was supposed to be seven feet tall. And it, it was going to be an exhibition match between a boxer and a wrestler. Some of y'all are very familiar with Rocky III, but that, that was, and, and so, but he was in this movie, and he got, you know, in these movies, Rocky, uh, Sylvester Stallone, in these movies, he, he probably weighed about 155 pounds. He's not a particularly large man, and, and Hulk Hogan weighs well over 300, so it's quite the, quite the contrast, but anyway, so, so Hulk Hogan was in this movie, kind of gave him some, some notoriety, so he comes back into wrestling now as a little bit of a media star, and that's, that's a, so in ninth, so just a couple years later, 1984, Hulkamania hits. I mean, it's everybody's into it. Uh, he, he's all over our culture. He's on the Tonight Show. He's on Saturday Night Live. He's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Actually, next picture here he is. Here he is, him and Mr. T on on Saturday Night Live. I mean, they, he just becomes somebody that every. If you you don't have to be about wrestling to know about Hulk Hogan. Uh, he goes on. Uh, his little Hulkamaniacs, all these kids all over trying to look like him. So does anybody remember the four demandments of, of Hulk Hogan and his, and his Hulkamaniacs? Anybody? Yeah, Tom, do you know these? Take your vitamins, that's one of them, okay. Say your prayers, that's two of them. Those are the two, the, the, the two remember. Also, a believe in yourself, and the first one is train hard. Train hard, take your vitamins, say your prayers, believe in yourself. That's that's what the that's what the Hulkster was telling everybody. I mean, he be, actually kind of became a pop psychologist. I mean, everybody was into Hulkamania, and for over a decade, I mean, really from mid '80s well into the mid '90s, he was a huge star. Uh, he started making movies. He, he, listen to this. Uh, the next slide. He was the number one requested person in the Make-A-Wish program. He, he, he granted over 200 uh, uh, wishes, visits with... The, actually, these two young guys are in Australia. He was, by far, he was the number one Make-A-Wish program uh, request and stuff. He was amazingly popular. Uh, everybody loved Hulk Hogan. 
He was, he was the superstar who was wildly positive until 1996. Twelve years into his superstardom, in the midst of being wildly popular, he suddenly became what's known in wrestling as the heel. The heel. And see, because see, in wrestling, and well, in other aspects of, of life, there's, there's two types of people. In wrestling, there, there's a person who's called the face or baby face. That's the positive person. And, and the face is, uh, you know, inherently positive. The people cheer for them. They always follow the rules. They're admirable. They're, they're the hero that people look up to, okay? That's known as the face. And then they're almost always set up against somebody who's the heel. The heel is the bad guy. The heel gets booed. The heel cheats like crazy. The, the heel is obnoxious. The heel is sarcastic. Okay, anyway, that, that, but I don't, I don't take that personally. Uh, they, 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 they cheat, they're unfair, they're arrogant, they're obnoxious, fans hate them. Some famous heels in wrestling are? Now you're just embarrassed to say it now. Now, that we've, now we've shamed Tom. You got Ric Flair, Vince McMahon, Rowdy, Roddy Piper, Bobby the Brain, Heenan. All these are the heels. And so you've got these bad guys versus the good guys. It's kind of how the stories are told. Hulk Hogan had been the ultimate face. For, for well over a decade, he had been the positive guy. And then in 19, well, July 7th, 1996, Hulk Hogan went from being the most popular face in wrestling history to suddenly, in a surprise move, becoming the heel by joining with two other bad guys to form Tom NWO. Thank you, thank you. The New World Order, the NWO, and they, do I have a picture of that? Yeah, there they are. He, he. These guys were wrestling two other guys, and Hulk comes out. Everybody thought he was coming out to beat them up, but instead he came out and joined with them, and the world was turned upside down. The wrestling world was shocked. I mean, how can he, how can he go to the other side? How can the good guy suddenly become the bad guy? Now, in the world of wrestling, it was a huge move for Hulk Hogan because you're losing your brand. Also, it's a huge move for Hulk Hogan because he's kind of becoming less popular. And all of a sudden, by coming to heel, he became more popular again. And that's just, you know, wrestling, right? Every culture has their faces, the good guys, and their heels, the bad guys. Every culture has that. And Jesus understood this because he's going to tell a story just like it. In Luke chapter 18, if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 18, and you'll see that Jesus was way ahead of Hulk Hogan. But here we go. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we got a story that is right out of uh, right out of the whole face and heel thing. So here we go. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. So so Jesus is is uh, Luke records a lot of Jesus' parables. And so uh, in chapter 18, verse 1, he talks about the, the parable of the persistent widow, wonderful parable about prayer, about being persistent, about, you know, having your desires and bringing them to the Father. But then he goes into verse 9, he, it changes up. He says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Now, that's a little unusual because Luke just flat out says this is who he's telling this parable to. And listen to this description. I love this description. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. So here's the thing that strikes me. If you were to go out today and just randomly pick 100 people and interview them and ask this question, hey, 
you consider yourself to be, how does Luke put it? You consider yourself to be confident in your own righteousness and you look down on everybody else. How many people of the hundred that you surveyed would say, yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm, I am confident in my own righteousness and I look down on everybody else. How many people would, would claim that title? You think eight would? Eighty. Oh, Jim, Jim, Jim. I don't think, I don't think anybody sees themselves that way. I, 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 think, I think people feel like, oh, no, that's not me. <laughs> I'm not like that. So, so this, is, this is one of these things where Luke says this is who he talked to, but I don't think those people are sitting there going, well, we're a group of self-righteous people who look down on everybody else because you never see that in yourself. I, I think typically we think more highly of ourselves. Now, to Jim's point, that's how many people are like that, but I said people who would claim that themselves, and I think most of us say, ah, that's not me. That's not me. Well, so Jesus is telling a parable to a bunch of people who don't see themselves that way. And that's one of the reasons Jesus used parables, because he's going to tell a story, and all of a sudden you go, hold it, is that about me? So here we go. So here's the story that Jesus tells. So uh, here we are, verse 10. It says, uh, two men went up to the temple to pray. Doesn't this sound like a joke? Have you heard the one about the two guys who went to the temple to pray? I mean, it's just, I actually I wasted some time last night trying to come up with a one-liner to answer that. But, uh, but I mean, it, it, it starts at like, hey, there's two guys, and they went up to the temple to pray. And Jesus could have left it at that. He could have just talked about two guys who went to the temple to pray. But that stay, keeps the story pretty vague, so instead he gets specific. He doesn't just say, he could have said, just two men went up to the temple to pray, this is how they prayed. No, he goes, there's two men who went up to the temple to pray, and, but then he does this. He says, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So he goes ahead and he, he fleshes out the story by saying who these two men are. And so, so again, he, by the way, I'm taking this off here. It's pretty easy. I'm all over the Internet. That sounds bad. Okay, you can just find me, okay? Google the potters, will you? can send me a message. All right, so anyway. So he said, he said, he said there's two people. There's a Pharisee. Okay, and we'll talk about what that is. And then there's a tax collector. Now, the Pharisee, the Pharisees, now to us, a Pharisee is a very negative term. Oh, man, don't be a Pharisee. At that time, you have to understand, that was not a negative term at all. The Pharisees were highly regarded by the common people. They were very religious. They were religious leaders. They were politically and religiously conservative. Some of you guys who are very conservative, that's who they were. Uh, they, they were religious leaders, they, they, were very, they were very serious about their faith, maybe the most serious about their faith. So when Jesus tells the story, in people's mind, we got a face and a heel, who's the Pharisee? They're the face. They're the good guys. I mean, the people, really the average people appreciated the Pharisees. They respected them. They, they, they were, they, they, and the tax collector is absolutely the heel because the tax collectors were Jews who had gone over to work for the Romans. They profited widely from it. Uh, Jewish culture hated the tax collectors. I mean, uh, the, the Jewish rabbis would not allow tax collectors to testify in the court of law because their word, you can't trust it. They were, many times they were kicked out of the local synagogue. They weren't allowed to do it. Uh, they, they, were, they were seen as being 
traitors, uh, dishonest, cheats. And so if you say, I mean, now, and we joke about tax collectors, but now, I mean, you just get a statement, a computer is your tax collector. There, it was a person who lived in your town, who took your money, gave most of it to the Romans, and kept a bunch for themselves. In this story, Jesus has a face and a heel, a good guy and a bad guy. Jesus sets up the story. That's how people would have anticipated it. So here it is. He's got a, he's got a face and a heel. He's got, he's got Hulk Hogan, and he's got, who do you want to put up there? Thank you. Yeah, you said Ric Flair, but you know, that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, here we go. All right. Why am I into wrestling all of a sudden? Here we go. All right, okay. So, so now Jesus is going to tell the story. And people already have a sense of how the story will go. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood up and prayed, uh, prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. So, so, so Jesus tells a story, and he, and he lets the Pharisee, again, both guys went up to the temple to pray. There were several times each day that you could go to the temple to pray. They had, you know, they had, uh, you know, it's a big deal when a church in the U.S. has multiple services. They had multiple services every day. And you, you could go in, you could pray, there'd be a sacrifice being taken. So there would be times to go to public to pray. So here they are, the Pharisee goes in. And, uh, and so the NIV here, I mean, uh, I mean Jesus here says in, in our Bibles uh, that, that, he, uh, that he stood up and prayed about himself. Now, actually, I, I do think the NIV here, there's some other ways that some of you have prayed about himself or some have it says prayed to himself, or some of you may even have in your translation prayed by himself. It's just one little Greek word. You can do it different ways. I think, I think personally from the, again, it's not like I'm a scholar, but from the scholars I've read, I think it was mostly he prayed by himself. And so he, so he goes in, he prays by himself. So, so he's got a little separation from the other people. Some of y'all like to do it. Y'all like to come in and you're, you're out there by yourself. You know, my buddy Terry back there, Terry Mantell is by himself today. He's way back there. He just wanted to be by himself, all right? And, th- and this guy seems to do it. He comes in and he prays by himself, all right? Well, and let's see, what else does he do here? So here we go. Pharisee uh, uh, up, prayed about himself. He says, God, I thank you. So, so he thanks God. He thanks God that he's, you know, he's not like these other people. And then he says, he says, I fast twice a week, so two times per week. Now, what's interesting is how many times were Jews required to fast? Anybody got that information? It's once a year. I think it's on the Day of Atonement. Once a year, they're, 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 this is what you're told. And so, so, so this Pharisee says, listen, you're doing it once a year. I'd do it twice a week. Many of the Pharisees would fast twice a week, all right? Uh, people would say they would typically fast on the days that a lot of people came into town so they could see it. Anyway, so I fast twice a week, and, and, he, and he says, I, I tithe everything. See, because, again, the Jews were required to tithe certain things, all right? So, so there it is. So, you know, Jesus tells a story. He said, well, there's two guys who went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and so the Pharisee kind of stood by himself. He, he prayed. He thanks God, he tell, and, and, and he uh, uh, alerts God to the fact that he fasts twice a week, and he ties everything. If you're the average Jewish listener listening to this, what do you think of this guy? He's good. He, he's a good guy. I mean, I, again, yeah, it's just, you know, he, he's, well, he's very admirable. Now, let's be a little bit more critical, though. 
you guys. Let's, uh, let's slow down a little bit. So what, what is Jesus saying by himself? Like this idea of him praying by himself. What is Jesus maybe inferring about this guy that he would kind of stand off by himself to pray? What's that? How so? Oh, it's all about him. Well, yeah, the prayer is all about him. Yeah, the prayer is all about him. But, but even but particularly the standing off by himself. I agree with you completely on the big picture. But particularly about this, this part here. It, there, there's, there's potentially a little bit of an elitist feel to it. Because why might he be standing off by himself, Paul? Better than everybody else. And to be quite honest, the Pharisee didn't want to come in contact with the average man. Because the average man... Uh, they've been defiled, and I am undefiled. I, am, I have not touched unclean things, and you know what? I don't know about this Earl guy, so I'm going to keep my distance from him because I can't be polluted by being with him. Now, that's not quite as attractive as some of what we've talked about. Anthony. Ooh, yeah, so there's a sense of it. He's right down front. Why is he down front, Anthony? He belongs, so one, I belong there. Because the priest is going to go from down front into, into the holier places, and I need to be right down front because that's where I belong and that's where I'll be seen. So he kind of, and you can't be seen if you're in with a crowd, but if you get to stand up, he says he stood up, and stand off a little bit right down front, well, then everybody can see that that's where you belong. So there may be a little bit of arrogance in all this. This is, I can't be seen with Earl, but I can be seen right down front in that way. Anybody else? The whole idea of standing up. Yeah. Well, how's he judging by standing by himself? He's already determined who is, that all these people aren't good enough for him. Okay. So, so, yes, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, so that's, yeah, that's who Jesus said he's talking to, and this is, he's kind of describing that kind of person. He's, he's right down front. So, so let's go on. It's, and then he, then he thanks God. That's good, right? Thanking God. That's a good thing. We should go to God with our thanks. Let's listen to what he thanks God for. He thanks God. Uh, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So he thanks God for what? He's thanking God for making him so awesome, so 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 good, so perfect. I'm, I, I'm better than these guys. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. Is, hmm, Anthony? May, I, I'm not like Earl. I'm not like Mary. I'm not, you know, and so he could go through the list and saying, because he's wanting he's to be specific for God. So I thank you for not making me like. So there, there's a famous prayer among Jewish men. Yeah, yeah, Chris. It's a humble brag. Oh, yeah. I thank you, God, for blessing me to be so blessed. Yeah, it's, it seems like he's thanking God, but he's really talking about how awesome he is. A humble brag. That's a good, good, good thought on that. I'll use that tomorrow. So, uh, uh, and, and it's interesting that he, it's, there, there's a classic Hebrew prayer of the time. A Hebrew man would pray, thank you, God, y'all can help me with this, that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a woman. And that would be the prayer. Lord, thank you for making me not a Gentile, not a slave, or not a woman. That's why Paul in Galatians 3.28, I think, will say, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. He went right at that prayer. But that prayer was very common. And here's this guy saying, 
Thank you, God, for not making me like these losers, making me as awesome as I am. And you're going like, wow, okay, now when I think about it, that's, and then he goes, I fast twice per week and I tithe everything. And he says, I'm just more righteous than, the, than probably anybody here. Anybody got a problem with that in your prayer? I mean, so, so to Jesus' point back on this, he's very confident in his goodness. He's very confident in, in how good he is. And to be quite honest, by religious standards, he is better than almost everybody there. That's not really not the debate. It's not that this guy's lying, even though I would question, really, are you really fasting all those times? But anyway, that's a whole other deal. But he said, you're not lying. You're just really, really impressed with yourself, with your own righteousness. So, as, 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 so as now as you look at it, like, well, maybe that guy's not quite as attractive as we thought he was, but Jesus sets it up beautifully by describing him that way. All right, so, so then now, now the flip side here. So, uh, so that, that, that's the Pharisee. Verse 13 says, but the tax collector, now again, right away, you're, if you're the audience, you know that the tax collector's the bad guy. But the tax collector, let me just let's work it out here again. He stood at a distance. So, so, so he, he, he's, he's far away. He stood, he, you know, he stood at a distance. Uh, he would not even look up to heaven. So, so he, he's, he's looking down. Uh, he, uh, he beat his breast. And he prayed, uh, again, the NIV basically puts it as, have mercy on me. I, I'm sorry, have mercy on me, uh, a sinner. All right, now let's think about these, what, these, these descriptive statements here. So, so, so first off, he stands at a distance. Anthony, where do you think he's standing? Back of the room, barely got in. You know, I'm just say, hey, listen. So, so what, what, now sometimes you all do that just so you can beat the crowd out to your car. Okay, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Well, what, what does that typically communicate? Somebody standing at the back of the room, barely getting in. Anthony, what, what, what does that communicate? Be, because he knows, he knows he could easily get kicked out. Matter of fact, there's a time in some of the services where they have the unrighteous are. are or made forced to leave, and maybe he thinks, you know, they're going to ask me to leave, so I might as well just stand by the door. Okay, anybody else on just stand there? Yes, sir. Yeah, he doesn't want to be a distraction because, to be quite honest, I mean, I don't even belong here. He feels like, I, you know, and so it's Chris. I, I, I feel unworthy to even be here in this holy place, much less right up front, closest to the holiest of God. He feels like I don't, even, I don't even feel like I belong here. Okay, all right, all right. So, so then. So he's standing at a distance, maybe just barely inside. It, it, it says he can't even look up at the heavens. He's looking down. I mean, he has a great sense of his own unworthiness again. And then it says, it is very interesting, he says he beat his breast. Now, again, my, my favorite guy on this is Kenneth Bailey, a guy who lived in the Middle East for a long time. He, said, he says, in the Middle East, men rarely beat their breast. It, it's a female thing to do, particularly. And, and, but when they do, it's a sign of showing great angst or great pain. The only other time that beating the breast is mentioned in the New Testament is at, at the crucifixion of Jesus. After he, after he died, it said that many people left beating their breast. This great time of 
pain and loss and anguish. And this guy, it says, he just stands there staring a hole in the ground and he's just beating his chest because he has this great sense of his anguish and, I think, lostness. He's like, oh. I, I can't even look up because I'm, I'm, I don't belong here. I, I'm just, I, I have this great sense of my own lostness. He beats his breath. Yes, Marvin. Oh, yeah. So Marvin points out that in our culture now, athletes, they beat their breast. And what does that tend to mean? Check me out. And, but again, this is the exact opposite. He's like, oh, you know, what's... What's happening here, right? So, 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 and then, and then he prays. His prayer is, "God, have mercy on me, a sinner." Contrast his prayer to the Pharisee's prayer. What's what? what how would you describe his prayer? Yes, sir. Yeah, his, his whole demeanor, his whole demeanor is filled with humility, and his words are. Lord, just have mercy on me. Okay, I, uh, yes, Dwight. He, he knows, he knows that I don't belong here, and Lord, all I can ask is for mercy. Okay, uh, yes. Deep remorse, yes. Short and sweet. Uh, Norman say he doesn't, he doesn't go into a lot of details because, I mean, Lord, just have mercy on me. Okay, yeah. Okay, so, so, so here, over here, we, we, we've, we've got a, a well-spoken guy standing up front. You know, it looks kind of religious. This guy just desperately asking for God's grace. Yeah, John. So, so, so the Pharisee's saying, I've got everything I need. I'm doing pretty well. This guy's saying, I am desperate. I'm broken, and I don't, I don't, I don't bring anything to the table. I don't bring anything. So anybody else? Uh, right. Glenn's pointing at somebody. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, Jerry. Mia Copa. And you're basically saying, I have all my faults and I come before you asking for your grace. Anybody else? Have mercy on me. So what's really interesting this, this have mercy on me, there, there's, an, there's a, a way that, uh, that's typically, they, they use this phrase, and this is a little bit different in Greek. Some, again, some scholars believe it's, it's literally more, more literally, be an atonement for me. It, it, well, it's all about repentance, but it's also a desperate plea. I don't bring anything to this. Will you be my atonement? Now, again, this is before Christ has gone to the cross. But Jesus tells a story about a man desperately coming and saying, I don't bring anything to this. Would you, again, an atonement, that is an Old Testament term. That's where the animal is sacrificed. The blood would cover the sins and atone the people. He says, I need that for me. Will you be my atonement? And again, it's a wonderful, and so, so this, this incredible contrast between the good guy, who when you look closer, seems a little too good, and he's very aware of it, and the bad guy who gets it, I'm the bad guy. But when Jesus tells the story, again, to the people listening, oh yeah, to this, to the people who are confident of their own righteousness and look down at everybody else, they know that's the good guy and that's the bad guy. Until Jesus says this. Here we go. Jesus says this, verse 14. 
I tell you that this man, he's talking about the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And I got to tell you, when he said that, there would have been a gasp from the audience. Because Jesus just said, the tax collector is the good guy. The heel turned good. And he says, and the other guy isn't justified. The good guy turned bad. All of a sudden, Jesus says, guys, you're wrong about these guys. You're wrong about these guys. This is actually the heel, and this is the face. This is the good guy. Now, is Jesus saying he's the good guy because he's done good things? Is he saying he's the bad guy because he's done bad things? Well, the problem, so, so how, why is this guy the bad guy? Because he's done good things. He's, well, well, he's not confessed sin. I got that. But he's, all of his good stuff, Elmer, it's all about him, and it's all about his own righteousness, his own goodness. This guy is not the good guy because he's done good things. Actually, he hasn't done good things, but in the midst of it, he's suddenly realized, I am desperate for God, and I have nothing to bring to him. I just come to him saying, would you, would you give me grace? And Jesus says, that's the guy that gets atoned. That would have been shocking to, their, to that audience. They would have been blown away by that. Jerry. Micah 6.8. I love it when Jerry does this. Micah 6.8. Yes, it's a, it's a verse in the Bible, and it says, what does the Lord require? Yeah, act justly. Seek mercy and walk humbly with his God. See, the problem is this guy isn't acting justly. He's judgmental. He's not walking humbly. He, he's, and he's not seeking anything from God because he's got it all. Now, he's thanking God for all that he has, but it's a humble brag. This guy, maybe he hasn't acted justly, but he, he's, he's now chosen to, and he's walking very humbly with his God. And Jesus says, that's the way you ought to live. And that turned their world upside down. Yes, Gary. Yeah. So, so back, back at, you know, we, we, we all, like, like, so, so Gary's made a point. He says, we all sin, I like that you said at times. Come on, man, you're sinning right now. But so, so here's the problem. How does the Pharisee see himself compared to the tax collector? I'm much better. Why? Because he sins less. And I don't disagree with him. Probably, certainly by their religious, religious terminology, he sins less than the tax collector. And different. Oh, who said that? That was good. And differently. Because you know what? My sins aren't near as bad as your sins. Amen. I mean, I can explain to you why my sins happen. I mean, it's almost never my fault. But your sins, that's an abomination to God. So, yes, he doesn't sin as much, and he sins differently. This guy, oh, boy. He, he, he. So let me ask you this. So this guy appears to be better than this guy based upon a standard of religious performance. And we see this throughout Scripture what is God looking at when he looks at you and me? He looks at the heart. He doesn't look at just what you do. He looks at why you do what you do. So, so Jesus is not saying, hey, tax collectors, 
that's the way. Everybody ought to be a tax collector, and you ought to cheat people as much as you can. No, no, he's not for this occupation that takes advantage of people, but he's using this person as a model of somebody who says, you know what? I have confessed, I have repented, and I've thrown myself on God's mercy. And he says, that's how you get atoned. That's how you get salvation. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, yeah, well, so not only in the heart, but humility, and humility, we're going to get to that later. Okay, so hang on to that one. All right, uh, good grief. Um, so I just, let me just say that when Jesus told this, people would have been shocked by it, but Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you all are, you're looking at the outward appearance of these two guys, and you're picking who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. I'm looking at the heart, and I got to tell you, this guy is all about himself and his own, his own righteousness. This guy is all about, he's come to the point of knowing that he has nothing and he throws himself on God's mercy, and that's how you find salvation. Guys, it's a radical message 2,000 years ago. It's still radical if we're honest about it. He, so, so then Jesus ends with a, a, a little a proverb, and, and uh, you see he uses this phrase several times in Scripture, uh, and then uh, Peter says pretty much the same thing. I think it's in 1 Peter. So, so, so essentially, oh, I, mean, I don't need this. So, well, let me read it, though, make sure I'm accurate. Yeah, I should probably hold on to it. Okay, here we go. Um, so it ends, ends with, ends with this, this little proverb. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus says, hey, listen, if you, if you exalt yourself, Like if you have a trumpet when you enter the room, all right. So 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 so. Uh, wow, that was impressive, right? So so if you exalt yourself, what's going to happen? You're going to be humbled. Now there's a difference from being humble and being and being humble. And so so who does the humbling? Yeah yeah. God says I'm going to humble you, and He's going to humble you by saying I have nothing to do with you. All right. So if you exalt, but then He says if you humble yourself. If you humble yourself, you're going to be exalted. And who does the exalting? Yeah, it's God again. So here's the problem. Too often, the person in the story and ourselves say, you know what? I'm pretty good. And God says, you know what? It's not about you exalting yourself. I'll do the exalting. You do the humbling. You humble yourself, and I'll exalt you. But when we get it turned around, when we try to exalt ourselves, he goes, well, let me help you with that. Let me put you in your place. And, and, he, and this, he said, that Pharisee's going home. Now, the problem is, I want you to, again, make sure. Jesus is not saying that all Pharisees are bad. He, he had good relationship with some Pharisees. He, uh, Nicodemus had a wonderful conversation with him. I mean, there were Pharisees who came to him. So he's not saying that being a Pharisee is what's wrong. He says how you are being a Pharisee, that's the problem. And he's certainly not saying tax collectors, that's what everybody ought to become for religious purposes. No, he goes, no. That, I don't think he was for what was happening there, certainly not for doing it illegally or immorally or unfairly. But he says, but that person, even that person, can throw themselves on the mercy of God, and that's where it's at. Okay, Jared, then I got to talk. Go ahead. If you exalt yourself, there's nowhere to go but down. But if you humble yourself, 
there's nowhere for God to do but, but to exalt you. It's, it's saying, Lord, I don't have to exalt myself because I trust that you will. Trust that you will. Both the... Good point, Jerry. Who's this guy trusting in? In reality, who's he trusting in? Himself. Who's this guy trusting in? Lord, have mercy on me. You be my atonement because I can't do it myself. Guys, it's the same message today. It's the same message. All right, so uh, I, I, I've never, I'm not good at this. Bob used to go, okay, three lessons for today. Okay, I got them. Three lessons for today. Three lessons for today. Three lessons for today. Okay, we're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. All right, three lessons for today. Here, number one. Okay, number one, number one. First one, I'll let you all talk a little bit about it. This is not a parable about being humble to each other. And that, that, that's a value. I and mean, we should, you know, hey, listen, don't be trying to boast about everybody else, about how good you are. That's not this parable. I mean, it, it's a worthwhile thing to be humble with each other. But this parable is actually about being humble with what? With God. And, your, and yourself. And yourself. But with God. And, so, and, and so, 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 so what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, listen, this is about understanding that when you come before God, now what's interesting is we're told that we can confidently come before God. We can boldly come into his presence, but based upon what? It's in Hebrews. It's a couple different places. We can come boldly before God. We can come confidently before his throne based upon what? Based upon the cross, based upon Christ's righteousness, based upon that I'm his child. You don't go boldly before God because you're all that. You don't go boldly before God because you volunteered for three things and you quit doing this and, you know, you don't yell at your wife anymore. That's not why you come boldly before God. You come boldly before God. The only way you can boldly because is because you're his child and because of what Christ has done for you. This guy is confident in himself. So instead, I come before God saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. As, uh, who was, uh, yeah, Norma over here says, short and sweet. I, I got to tell you, that phrase, have mercy on me, a sinner, might want to become something you memorize. <laughs> and just as you go through your day, <laughs> every now and then, and what's great about me, whereas Gary says sometimes we sin, I get reminders all the time. I have a thought, I have an attitude, I have a mindset, and I just pause and say, have mercy on me, a sinner, Lord. Thank you for reminding me again of how desperately I need you. So that, that, that little prayer is really, really helpful. All right, that's point number one. This isn't about being humble with each other, even though that's valuable. It's about being humble before God because I got to tell you, he loves you desperately, but you don't deserve that love. So it's all about his grace, right? Number two, lesson number two. Self-righteousness blinds me to my spiritual reality. Absolutely, Self-righteousness blinds me to my and others' spiritual reality. How does that happen? Let me help you. So uh, I was reading uh, something earlier this week by R.C. Sproul, wonderful uh, theologian writer, and he was saying that when he was younger at a church he was at, he was in charge of an evangelism program, and so the people would go out, he would train them how to evangelize people, they'd go out and they'd stop people on the street or go to their homes, and they had questions to go through, it's kind of, I think it was probably evangelism explosion or whatever, it's a kind of a, a program you go through, some of you all have done this, but in it he says at some point we asked the question, if you stood before God tonight, or today, do you think that he, would, that he would receive you into heaven? And if they would say yes, they would ask why. And he says that the people who said yes, 
yes, I think I'd, come, I'd be accepted in heaven. When they would ask why, he said that 90% of the people would answer with, well, I'm better than most people, or I've been a good person, or I try hard to be a good... 90% of the people said, I'm pretty good. And he, he, he said he was blown away by that because this would even be some church people would answer with, I'm better than other people. I'm good. I, I'm this, I'm that. I've tried hard. I, I've gotten better. So that's not the right answer. That's not the right answer. Now, it's the religious answer, but it's not the gospel message. The gospel message is, why would you just go to heaven? And you could ask me this question. I'll say, it's only because I've thrown myself on the mercy of God and that through Jesus Christ, he's provided that. That's the only way to go. And so, so, so I just want to say to you that, but my self-righteousness blinds me to that. How so? How does my self-righteousness blind me to that fact? Here's one of the problems. Some of y'all get your act together and you start thinking that you're all that. And you're still so far from God's perfect righteousness that you have to say, Lord, even on my best day, my righteousness, well, Apostle Paul would say it's like filthy rags. It's, it's, even my best day is not that good. And that, that's our position with, with Jesus Christ. All right, so, and oh, and how does it blind me to other people's righteous condition? Oh, Rick, comparative morality. I think I'm doing better. That Rick guy's still falling behind. I've talked to his wife. He's, and so I start judging him based upon my righteousness, supposedly, and I look down on him for that. Here's the reality. Rick's a goofball, but we're, we're in this together. You're no better than me. Well, maybe I am better than you today. Maybe tomorrow you're better than me, but you know what? We're still, we haven't gotten anywhere close to him, so we're in this together. It blinds me to your issues as well. Self-righteous people rarely do things for the right reasons. All right. Point number three, spiritual self-confidence and a judgmental spirit go hand in hand, and they're symptoms of a greater disease. Uh, Bill, Dr. Bill, when patients come to you back in the past, back when you were actively, I, I got, and I got next to you, Luke, the, the dentist. This will be even easier. So, I, I, so, so Luke, people come into you. When they come into you and they're complaining about something, what are they focused on? Their pain, which is, in reality, you understand that their, their pain is a problem, but really their pain is just a symptom of a greater thing. They go, man, my, you know, can you do something about this? They just want to get rid of the pain. You want to do what? You want to find out what's causing the pain and fix that. See, so, so here's the problem. Spiritual self-confidence and a judgmental spirit, they are symptoms of a greater disease. What's the greater disease of spiritual self-confidence and a judgmental spirit? All right, one is ego, all right? Edging God out. Yeah, 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 yeah. See, it's like a Bob Russell tape being played over here. Okay, right, okay, right. So, yes, sir, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so Glenn said it's spiritual arrogance. I mean, it's, 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 it's a heart that doesn't understand who they are and who God is. Okay, yeah, yeah. Herb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, they're symptoms of a person who's counting on themselves and, and their performance and not God's grace. And so, so, but again, oh, here's the problem is nobody thinks they're spiritually self-confident and judgmental. You might want to ask people around you, somebody you can really trust, and say, hey, do you think I'm ever kind of spiritually self-confident and judgmental? 
and then pray ahead of time that you'll be able to receive what they have to say. So I got to tell you, American evangelical Christianity looks a little bit like that. We can be really judgmental. And we, and we say that we're just, you know, judging fruit and this and that, and we love the person too much not to tell them how they're going to hell today and all that sort of stuff. And I understand that that can be the truth, but many times it's just because we're spiritually self-conscious because we're better than them and we're judging them. It's hard. Okay, we, i got to wrap this up. All right. Hey, hey uh, here's the deal. If Jesus were to come into our culture today, he plops down in Louisville, Kentucky, he starts uh, hanging out with us, and he goes, hey, I've got a story to tell you. Who would he choose to illustrate? Because he wouldn't say a Pharisee and a tax collector, because that doesn't mean anything to us. Who do you think, uh, Jerry's got his hand up, I can't wait to hear this. Who do you think he would choose to put in these roles? Jerry, what do you got? A politician? Which one's which? And a homeless person. I disagree with you on that one. Okay, I, I, I got you. All right, so who, who would he put over here as the person that we, uh, we automatically think is the good guy? Saturday, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, somebody who's a good church person. Maybe even like a pastor or a, or a church leader. Somebody who has the appearance of doing things the right way. That's the reason I was uncomfortable with politicians, Jerry. All right. So, so, so. Right, so here's the hard one for us, because this is the one that's going to make us uncomfortable. And I, I don't have an answer on this. I'm just wanting you to, who would he put as the tax collector today? Now, Jerry started off with the homeless person. And I'll say not just homeless, but a panhandler. You know, because you can judge that person, because I do it every day. So I can judge that person. Who else might he use? Yes, sir. Yeah, he, he could use any of us, but, but he's, making, he's making a point by grabbing your attention. Who, would he, who is the people that we tend to judge? Yes, sir. Somebody in an addiction, you know, because they're just not trying. And so we, someone who's struggling, not just not the person who used to have it, but the person who's struggling, in it, that's somebody that he might use. Absolutely. Anyone who's an outcast in our society, and we got a whole list of those. And who makes them outcast? Many times it's us. Bill? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, and you judged her at first, but that, we like the nice little lady at the hospital. That, that's, that's okay. I think Jesus would use something more radical. Yes, sir. All right, somebody who's serving time. Absolutely, we judge that person. Anybody who's an, so I'm, I'm not going to fill in, I, I don't have an answer for you, but I just want to stretch you with this idea that Jesus would maybe choose somebody that you judge as automatically as being wrong. And he's saying, but you know what? If they have their heart turns to him, as a place of mercy, he says, that's who will spend eternity with me. Guys, Jesus told this parable to people who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. I got to tell you, it's easy for me just to read through that and tell you what it means. I have to look in the mirror and say, is he talking to me? Is he talking to me? How often do I beat my breast saying, Lord, have mercy on me? And how often do I say, Lord, we got this thing going on. Look at me. It's for you to think about. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word, which is strong and which speaks to our heart. Lord, I pray that we would not uh, water this down. We wouldn't uh, 
say, yeah, everybody else needs to hear this, that we would receive it. Lord, are you speaking to me about my self-righteousness and my judgmental spirit? Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves and honest with you. And I thank you that you love us enough to speak the truth. Lord, all these things are praying in Jesus' glorious name.